Well, good evening. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to John chapter 18, I'd like to look at the passage with you for just a couple minutes. So we're looking at John chapter 18, and we'll be starting at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I shall release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So when Stephanie and I moved into uh, the parsonage about three years ago, uh, we set up our bedroom, and it was kind of like when we go into the door of the bedroom, we put the bed on the left-hand side. And I don't remember us really kind of thinking much about it. It was just the only wall that didn't have a window on it, so we just put it there and didn't think much of it. And then after two and a half years, I looked at it, and Stephanie had probably been thinking this before me, but I look at it and it's like, hmm, maybe that's not the best place for the bed. And so I talked to Stephanie and we decided we're going to move it. And so we moved it to a different wall. And then after we moved it there, we thought to ourselves, so why didn't we do this sooner? I mean, we had so much more room. It seemed so much more open. But I had walked in there every day and not thought about it because it was always a certain way. I didn't think about the fact that it could be different. And I think we do the similar thing sometimes when it comes to Good Friday. We think about the story of the cross, and, and we've heard it before. And I think we look at it a certain way sometimes. And so sometimes maybe we can't look at it from a different perspective because it becomes so familiar to us. And I think sometimes it becomes commonplace. Sometimes it fails to move our hearts because it becomes so ordinary. But when we think about the scriptures, the, the Word of God, it's not like any other book of, lit, book of literature. The Word of God is living and active, and the Word of God kind of draws us into the story. When we read the Word of God, it's not simply a history. It doesn't simply tell us what happened, although it does tell us what happened. But it draws us into the story. It causes us to ask the question, where do I fit in this story? And as we look at the scripture, and specifically this passage, we have to see where do we fit into the story. Author Brian Chappell speaks of this as the fallen condition focus of the text of scripture. And he defines this fallen condition as the mutual human condition that contemporary believers share with those to, to or about whom the text was written that requires the grace of the passage for God's people to glorify and enjoy him. So we look at the scripture and we see commonalities with the characters in scripture, how they needed grace and how we in turn need grace. So we look at this story, 
of the Jews who killed Jesus. And maybe on the surface we think to ourselves, well, I would never do something like that. I would never kill the Son of God. Well, maybe not. Maybe we wouldn't. But when we look at the heart attitudes that kind of drove them to do these things, I think we have more in common with these people who killed Jesus than we imagine. The story is not just about the Jews and the Romans who killed Jesus. We look at the story and we are a part of that story. That those heart attitudes that they had are heart attitudes that, are, that we have. And so I think the story of the cross of Good Friday tells us a few things. The first thing that Good Friday does is it reveals who we are. In the passage that I just read, Pilate speaks with Jesus for just a short time. And after speaking with Jesus, he finds no guilt in Jesus. And he's seeking to release Jesus. And so he brings them before the crowds and says this in verses 39 to 40. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, out again not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now Pilate doesn't find any guilt in Jesus, and so he's trying to release him. And so Pilate probably thought... That if he brings out Jesus and he brings out Barabbas, the crowd is going to choose to release Jesus. I mean, Barabbas is just, in, in the book of John, he's described as a robber. In the book of Matthew, he's described as a notorious criminal. In the book of Mark, he's described as a murderer and an insurrectionist. So he was a bad dude. Someone people didn't want to mess with. And so Pilate probably thinks, of course, they're going to choose Jesus to be released. But they don't do that. They choose Barabbas. They choose the robber rather than the king. And I think this passage shows something about the human condition, and that is that we have this tendency to choose robbers over the king. And this tendency we see throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, people have this bent to choose robbers rather than the king. You go back to the book of Genesis, how God created uh, this idyllic, perfect existence for Adam and Eve. He gave Adam and Eve everything they could ever uh, dream of, things that you know, we couldn't even imagine. He gave them all that they needed for food. He walked with them in the cool of the day. Imagine what that would be like to walk with God physically in the middle of the day. Incredible blessings that they had. The only thing they were told not to do was not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what did Satan come and say? The serpent comes and says, God is trying to keep something from you. You're not going to die if you eat from this tree. God's trying to keep something from you. If you eat from this tree, you're going to become like God. You're going to know good and evil. And what do they do? They buy into the lie of the serpent. The serpent who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The serpent who goes around prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour. But they listen to the robber, the one who wants to take everything from them rather than the one who had given everything to them. They choose the robber over the king. Then we look a little bit later in Israel's history, and Israel uh, becomes slaves. Israelites become slaves in Egypt. And God delivers them in an incredible way. God brings them through the Red Sea, and brings them to freedom. And what do they do when they experience that freedom? They're in the desert, they're in the wilderness, and they wonder where they're going to get their next meal. They wonder where they're going to get water. And so what do they say? They say, 
We should have gone back to, we should go back to Egypt. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it. They're saying we should go back and be slaves. We should go back to this Pharaoh who wanted to take everything from us, who worked us to the bone, who made us uh, make bricks without straw, who was brutal to us. We should go back to him. They chose the robber rather than the king. Then you get a little bit further in Israel's history. Israel goes into the promised land, and as they go into the promised land, they see the other nations, and they see the other nations have kings that fight for them, physical kings. Now, God had been their king all throughout their history, and God was their, their ruler, and God provided for them judges to, kind of to, to, to cover kind of disputes that they had, but God was their king. And they're like, we want a king like the other nations. We want to be like everybody around us. And so God, uh, or Samuel, warns them. So he says, if you have a king, if you have a king, the king is going to take stuff from you. He says the, the king is going to take and conscript your sons, make them go to war. He's going to make you uh, build gardens and temples for him. I mean, a king is for his own glory. And so if you have a king, an earthly king, that king is going to take things from you. What do they say? We, we want a king. An earthly king. And so they choose robbers, an earthly king, rather than the true king. Then you enter the period of the kings. And most of the kings were bad. Some of them were good. But most of them led the people into idolatry, led them astray from God. It gets so bad that the northern and southern kingdom of Israel are split. Then both of them are sent into exile. And then as we look in the scripture at, uh, at the reason for the exile... The reason for the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah is given in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 25. It says this, This is your lot, the portion I have measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. In other words, they had forgotten the king and trusted in robbers. They had forgotten the one who had given them all things and had turned to idols. Then after that, there have a, some freedom. Then Jesus comes on the scene, and then what does Jesus say in John chapter uh, 10? Jesus says, thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, while some go on to believe in him, many of them do not. Many of them listen to the voice of the robbers, the religious leaders who led the people astray religious leaders who sought to take from the people. They listened to them rather than the voice of the king. I wish I could say that this was limited to the Bible, Bible times. But sadly, this is the bent of the human heart. This is something that's universal throughout history that we choose the robber rather than the king. And sometimes we're so deep into it that we don't even recognize the depth to which we've fallen. Uh, pastor, uh, a man named Pastor Dan Meyer describes how years ago he traveled to Ecuador and spent a couple weeks there in the mountains with the, with the Quahe Indian people. And he describes the squalor that he experienced. And the thing that was interesting was uh, that the people had no idea the conditions that they were living in. Meyer says this, the bugs and stench were everywhere. 
The disease and disfigured bodies were heartbreaking. People were living in a hole in the ground and calling it a house. They were feeding on rotten food and prizing garbage as possessions. But they didn't know it. Why, he said, because everyone lived that way. They had never been given a picture of what it means to be a genuinely healthy human being. They did not know what an abundant life truly looked like. And I think we can do the same thing. We get so used to trusting in robbers, serving robbers rather than the king, that it just becomes commonplace. So what does that look like, to trust in a robber rather than the king? We do it when we become slave to substances, whether it's alcohol or drugs or food, any substance. We become slaves to these things, and these things take from us. They may harm our health. They may harm our relationships. They may harm our relationship with God, but we come back to these things again and again because we'd rather serve the robber than the king. We do it in regard to our sexuality, when we live outside of the bounds that God has given us, whether we engage in promiscuity, sex outside of marriage, adultery, pornography, homosexuality, whatever the case may be, we run to these things because we'd rather serve the robber than the king. Maybe we turn to bitterness, anger. Maybe we turn to gossip. Maybe somebody has harmed us and we just turn to this bitterness in our soul. Maybe we just like to talk bad about other people. And we know that it's staining our soul. We know that it's harming our relationships with other people. But we keep running back to it because we'd rather serve a robber than the king. Maybe we turn to anxiety and fear. We try to control our circumstances. We try to get a tight grip upon the things that are happening happening to us. Try to control everything. But the more we try to do these things through worry and anxiety, the more joy evades us. But we keep doing it. We keep running back to it because we'd rather serve a robber than the king. Maybe rather than spend time with God, we turn to excessive uh, media use, television, video games, cell phones. We know that these things are not life-giving in excess. We know they take from us, but we turn to them anyways because we'd rather serve a robber than the king. The Bible calls these things idolatry. Idolatry is not something that somewhere, someone engaged in. It's something that all of us, each and every one of us, have engaged in. It's the bent of the human heart. John Calvin once said this, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us from his mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. Uh, Scott Haifman, a professor, describes idolatry this way. Idolatry is the practice of seeking the source and provision of what we need, either physically or emotionally, in someone or something other than the one true God. It's the tragically pathetic attempt to squeeze life out of lifeless forms that cannot help us meet our real needs. And so we all have this tragic tendency to choose robbers over the king. And so when we think about this passage and we think of the choice that's before the, the, the Jewish people, do you want to release a robber? Or do you want to release the king? We all have that tendency to choose the robber rather than the king. And so Good Friday reveals who we are. It reveals that we're all guilty. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we're all guilty of God's, uh, um, deserving of God's judgment. So that's the first thing that Good Friday reveals. But there's a second thing. The second thing that Good Friday reveals is it reveals who God is. It reveals the God that we serve. 
What Jesus does on the cross is remarkable. In the cross, we see a king who chooses the cross over the crown. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus becomes Barabbas. Jesus becomes the murderer. He becomes the robber. He becomes the insurrectionist. He becomes sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The murderer is released, but the sinless son of God is condemned to the most brutal and horrible death imaginable. So Jesus is presented before the people. They say, give us Barabbas. And then Jesus is taken by the soldiers and flogged, beaten to a bloody pulp. They take a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And then they put a robe around him and they bring him out to the people. And, they, and Pilate says, behold the man. In essence, what he's saying is, behold your king, Israel. This is your king. The king who wears a crown of thorns. From there, Jesus starts the road to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He starts out carrying his own cross, but the pain, the weakness just overwhelms him. Someone else has to carry it. No doubt as he's carrying it to the place where he would be crucified, people are mocking him along the way, saying, if you're the son of God, why don't you save yourself? If you can heal the lame Open the eyes of the blind. Why are you in such a predicament? Finally, he reaches the place of the skull and they take nails, pound them in his hands and his feet. He's experiencing the most brutal torture that has been ever, has ever been invented. It was designed in such a way that people would live long enough to suffer for hours. Jesus is experiencing incredible torment, but he's also experiencing spiritual torment, separation from God. In the scriptures, when you think about someone who's hung on the cross, a person who's hung on the cross was a person who was cursed by God. In Deuteronomy, it says, cursed is the man who's hung on a tree. A person who was hung on a tree was not your average criminal. It was the worst of the worst. In the Jewish mind, if someone was hung on a tree, it was like saying, there's no punishment that's bad enough for this person. If you have someone that murders someone else, kind of the punishment, the just punishment is that they'll be put to death. But what about someone who murders 100 people? What kind of punishment is there for that? And so for the person who is hung on a tree, it's like they're saying there's no punishment that befits the crime. And so Jesus is experiencing incredible spiritual anguish as God's wrath is being poured out on him. He's being separated from his father. Max Cato describes this separation from the father this way. Speaking from the perspective of God, here is the cup, my son, drink it alone. Cato says, God must have wept as he performed this task. Every lie, every lure, every act done in shadows was in that cup. Slowly, hideously, they were absorbed in the body of the son. The final act of incarnation. The spotless lamb was blemished. The king turns away from his prince. The undiluted wrath of a sin-hating father falls upon his sin-filled son. The fire envelopes him. The shadows hide him. The son looks for his father, but the father cannot be seen. My God, my God, why? 
It was the most gut-wrenching cry of loneliness in history. And it came not from a prisoner or a widow or a patient. It came from a hill, from a cross, from a Messiah. My God, my God, he screamed, why did you abandon me? Never have words carried such hurt. Never has one been so lonely. The despair is darker than the sky. The two who have been one are now two. After Jesus is crucified, the soldiers put a sign over his cross that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Truer words have really never been spoken. Again, hear Israel, this is your king, a king who dies on the cross. And I think about the suffering that Jesus was experiencing and think about the physical suffering and that torment that he's experiencing, how the wrath of, of mankind is being poured out on him, and also that spiritual suffering, how the wrath of God was being poured out on him, that he was taking our sin, taking our punishment. And think about what was he thinking about in those moments? What were the things that were going through his mind? Now, if I was in that situation, I would probably be calling down curses on those people. I would probably be thinking in my mind, just wait till I get down from this cross. Wait till I rise from the grave three days later. I'm going to show you who's strong, who's mighty. But Jesus isn't doing any of those things. Look at what Jesus is thinking about in John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In Jesus' darkest hour, he was not thinking about self-preservation. He was thinking about other people. He was thinking about his family. He was thinking about his mother and making sure she was cared for. But not only was he thinking about his own family, he was also thinking about his enemies. Remember what he says from the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So in his darkest hour, when he's experiencing the most incredible physical torment, the most incredible spiritual torment, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his family. He's thinking about his enemies. And I believe he was thinking about you and me. People who choose robbers over the king. I believe that in his mind, he was thinking about us. How we would one day be born. How we would need that forgiveness. How we would need that grace that he offered on the cross. And he walked that road to Calvary for us. What an incredible king we serve. A king who chooses a cross over a crown which thinks about others even in the most dark moments of his life. So Good Friday gives us a reminder of who we are, that we'd rather serve robbers than the king. That again and again, the story of humanity is that in the presence of holiness, we say, give us Barabbas. But again, it also reveals who God is, a God who chooses the cross over the crown. Henry Nguyen, author shares how uh, he knew this family from Paraguay. And uh, the father was a doctor, and he spoke out against the authoritarian military regime uh, that was in control at that time period. 
And as a result of him speaking out, they wanted to exact revenge on him. And so they captured his son, threw his son in prison, and brutally tortured him, and eventually killed him. Now the whole town was in an uproar. They wanted to make these people pay. They wanted to have this big protest march. But the father didn't want to do anything like that. Instead, what the father did was he went into the prison. He got that, the, the body of his son, got the blood-stained mattress that he was left laying on, and brought his body out to the town square with blood all over him, bruises on him, cigarette burns, uh, electrocution burns, and all the village saw what this regime had done. And it was the greatest protest that this father could ever make because it showed the depths of how bad this regime was. Philip Yancey says this, isn't that what God did at Calvary? The cross that held Jesus' body, naked and marked with scars, exposed all the violence and injustice of this world. At once, the cross revealed what kind of world we have and what kind of God we have, a world of gross unfairness, a God of sacrificial love. So Good Friday reveals who we are. It reveals who God is. And I think that sometimes we can forget one or the other of these things. Sometimes we can forget who God is. Sometimes we get so consumed by our sin and our brokenness. We're consumed by guilt. We're consumed by shame. We feel like we've dug a hole that we just can't get out of. Maybe we feel like we're hopeless. And so we can forget sometimes that we serve a God who chooses the cross over a crown. We can forget the fact that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us so that we wouldn't have to live in darkness anymore. So that's the first mistake we can make. We can forget who God is, but we can also forget where God has brought us from. We can forget who we are. We sometimes as believers, we bask in the forgiveness and love of God, and that's a good thing, to bask in those things. But let's not forget where God has brought us from. Let's not forget what God has saved us from. Years ago, there was a woman that came to a pastor, and the pastor, and she confided in this pastor that she had done something really horrible to her husband about 15 years prior. Something that was almost unforgivable. But her husband said that, told her, I, I completely forgive you. And she described how she knew that she was forgiven, but she couldn't move on from it. She knew she was forgiven because each week her husband would say, I forgive you. I forgive you. And even though she was forgiven, that forgiveness was a reminder of who she was, who she, what she had done. Sometimes I think we need a reminder. We don't need to live in the past, but sometimes we need to be reminded of what God has saved us from. Several years ago, I started birding and taking pictures of birds. And I didn't have a camera to do so, so I would take pictures with my cell phone. And if you've ever tried to take a picture of a bird with a cell phone, it's very difficult. You can't get very good shots because birds, you know, sometimes they're, you know, like this big, and it's not like they're coming up and landing on your hand. 
So even if you had a bird that was from me to the end of the sanctuary, if you're taking a picture with a cell phone, it's not going to be a very good picture. But that's all I had, so I would just take pictures with that cell phone. Then my wife got me a camera for uh, my birthday one year and had, you know, kind of a long zoom lens. And so then I was able to take some good pictures of these birds. You know, and I, you know, got to a point where it's like, all right, this is, this is, this is cool, but what would it be like to, to have a bigger lens, a nicer camera? But I was looking through my uh, phone the other day, and I was looking back a few years and looking at some of the pictures that I took with my camera, with my uh, phone camera, before I had this zoom lens. I looked at the pictures and it's like they were all grainy and pixelated and the bird was like this big. And it's like, why did I even take a picture like that? I mean, it's just terrible. But then I was grateful for what I had. Sometimes I think that maybe we need to go back a little bit. Maybe we need to look at those pictures of who we used to be. We need to look at the picture of where God brought us from. Because when we do that, when we see who we were and where God has brought us, it produces gratitude in our hearts. Let's never forget the price that Christ paid for our sins. We all have this tendency to choose the robber over the king. And praise the Lord that he saved us, that he's forgiven us, that he paid the ultimate price so that we could be free, so that the grave would not be our end, so that we could spend forever with him. Let's not forget that. Let's remember where God has brought us from. I'd like to close by reading uh, him from a man by the name of P.P. Bliss called Man of Sorrows. It says, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to re- reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, lost we were. Blameless Lamb of God was he. Sacrifice to set us free. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He was lifted up to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that even though we're broken sinners, people who would rather serve the robber than the king, that you loved us so much that you came to the earth to pay the ultimate penalty for our sins so that we could be free, so that we could experience your forgiveness. Lord, help us never to forget who you are. Help us to never forget that there's none of us that are too far from your grace. There's nothing that we've done that's too great for your grace, that there's hope, there's mercy, there's forgiveness in your arms. And also help us never to forget who we are. Never to forget where you've brought us from. Never to forget that we are sinners, but that you've made us righteous. That you've given us a new name. You've called us sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for what you've done for us. Help us to never be beyond your cross. To never get over your sacrifice for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.